This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. And if you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 131 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, guys. Well, I feel like I have yet another stacked show for you today, and I can't wait to share it with you. There are three main things that I have for you. I went to a show in Tampa this past weekend. I'm going to give you a quick recap of that. I got a couple things in the mail that I think are worth mentioning. Not as big of a segment as last week, but still some things that I want to share nonetheless. And then what I'm really excited about, I recorded a conversation with Dr. Beckett about education and the hobby. You know, it's funny. We chatted before all the big hobby news with the various vaults and fanatics went down, which really hasn't been that long ago, although it seems like an eternity. The good thing is there was nothing real-time sensitive in there. He was kind enough to have me on his show. You might have heard that last week. Then he stayed on for another 40 minutes or so, and we knocked out this conversation as well. I think you'll definitely want to make sure to stick around for that. Okay, so this past weekend, I went to the Tampa Bay Collectible Sports Card Show. Some of you might remember that I recapped my trip to the Bay Area card show a couple weeks ago. That one's really in Clearwater. They call it Bay Area. Uh, And these are two different shows. Now, one thing I really like about Florida is there's a pretty good mix of sports card shows. And even though there's some overlap, they all have a little different of an identity. And you can take different approaches to each one. The Bay Area card show, the one I talked about last week or two weeks ago, is advertised as having 120 tables. There's a lot of slab stuff, a lot of liquid stuff, uh, but there's good stuff too, and people are more likely to travel from out of town or out of state to attend that one. The Tampa show that I went to this past weekend feels a little smaller. It's in a Holiday Inn now. Um, It used to be at a local flea market, and it still kind of has that vibe to it. I don't mean that in a negative way. I liked that flea market show, and I went to it quite a bit. Um, And I'll label it more as a digger's show, meaning it's really good for people that want to walk in with $50 and dig through boxes for a couple hours. And that's me. And I ended up spending, I think, $77 on Saturday. Now, make no mistake about it. When you're digging, there's a lot of stuff that people would classify as junk. And this is where knowing your parallels, your inserts, and your case hits really pays off. If you dig long enough, you're bound to find something. And I'll make a YouTube video that describes each one of my finds in more detail. But pretty soon after heading in the door, um, you know, I did a little digging and I found a 1995-96 finest Magic Johnson refractor for like um, an eighth of what it should have cost. So that was exciting. Uh, Another thing I like about this show is that I run into cards that 
I didn't know existed or I'd never seen in person. And usually if a seller has a lot of them, they're willing to teach you some about them in the process. So this time, I found a dealer that had a bunch of old cards of uh, politicians, athletes, and actors from the 1920s. And he said they were called strip cards and they used to be distributed in retail stores in strips and then people could cut them apart. So um, they're not worth much, but I thought they were pretty cool. I picked up 10 of them at $2 a piece. As for the other stuff I saw a lot of there, uh, a lot of the usual stuff, of course, pretty much everyone had their uh, box of 2019 and 2020 era shiny junk. There were still some dealers that were setting up all of their Target and Walmart retail displays. I don't know how much longer this is going to last, though. Um, I kind of wanted to rip another Prism Cello, but I only saw one dealer that had a price posted and they wanted $40. I'm not getting anywhere close to that. There was one seller that was selling uh, vanity slabs, which I'd seen in some people's cases before, but I'd never seen anyone actually selling the slabs. I didn't know where they were getting from, getting them from. Um, but these are slabs where you could slab your own cards. And I, I don't think that's a horrible idea. In fact, I've mentioned it in the past with you know PSA. Some people just want their stuff in a PSA slab. They don't care so much about the grade. Well, um, these are not PSA slabs. It was a different company. And um, like I said, the price seemed a little bit high to me. It was $20 a piece. I'd rather, I think I'd rather just add a little more and send my cards to SGC or CSG or maybe even HGA if I wanted that fancy label, but it was interesting nonetheless. All in all, I found a good mix of vintage and modern basketball, some stuff for my PC, and some stuff that I'll add to my show inventory in the months to come. Uh, I plan to set up next weekend with a friend at the CollectorCon in Tampa, and I've already seen that people are coming from out of state for that show, and it should be a lot of fun. I'm curious to see if it will be like a big regional show like Dallas or Boston, and I guess only time will tell. So like I said earlier, check out my YouTube if you want to see me talk about some of my pickups in more detail. That video will come out after my first recap video, so you'll want to be on the lookout for that. Okay, on to the mail. I only got a few cards in the mail this week, but none of them cost me more than $10. Uh, well, the third one actually cost me zero because it was a gift. But um, the first card that I got is a Cassius Stanley card. As I've mentioned before, the Pacers didn't have a first round pick last year, and they took Cassius in round two. You know, I just assumed he'd have a National Treasures RPA since all of the relics are essentially props. It would be cheap product fodder for Panini. You know, they just buy a jersey, cut it up, you know, they don't have to worry about getting him to wear it. Um, surprisingly, he didn't. Well, I wasn't going to buy one anyway, because I'm not looking to add any unworn relics or props to my collection. But um, a couple weeks ago, I talked about an elite status parallel I picked up that was numbered 2 out of 2. I wanted to pair that with the Aspirations 2 out of 98, which I haven't located yet. In the meantime, though, the 2 out of 99... To remember, twos is jersey number. Parallel showed up. And Vintage Pacers was kind enough to send that listing my way. I went ahead and I hit the bin. Um, it uses the same great dunk contest photo as the status parallel. It's not a die cut, but it's still not a bad looking card overall. Um, the second card was another buy it now that I hit when I saw it. Someone listed an upper deck George Gervin patch for around $10 shipped. And it's not a big patch. It's actually in the same set as the first Moses Malone patch that I picked up. 
and talked about here on the show. I figured I could pair the two of those cards together. Well, when the envelope showed up, I I knew I was going to have a problem on my hands. It was sent using the eBay standard envelope program. Look, I've sang the praises of this program in the past. It's a great way to get cards $20 and under without paying expensive shipping costs. It's motivated me to buy more low-end stuff on eBay, and I hope in the long run it motivates sellers to keep listing it. However, jerseys and patches really should not be shipped using this program. The mail sorting machines just eat these things alive. I had my suspicions that this thing got chewed up a little in transit, so it wasn't a surprise when I opened it up and discovered that the card had three or four small creases on the surface. You know, I still like the patch and it didn't ruin the card overall. Um, I sent the seller a message with a picture just to show them, just for their information, to show them that these patch cards aren't great candidates for the standard envelope program. I wasn't asking for a refund or anything like that. But they ended up giving me one anyway, so uh, kudos to them for that. Thank you. Like I said, it didn't completely ruin the card. It still looks great in a top loader, and you don't see George Gervin patches every day anyway. So as usual, um, I'll try and get some pictures of those on my social media at some point so you can see them for yourself. Um, Okay, and then the last edition, the third and final card, came from a longtime listener named Jeremy. He sent me a real nice note with a Taco Bell-themed card from um, a Cranium board game. And as he mentioned in the note, there are are other Taco Bell cards out there, but they're all either advertisements or coupons. This one is a legitimate, standalone Taco Bell card. Um, So thanks again, Jeremy, for that. I do really appreciate it. I got a good laugh out of it, but it's something, you know, I, I actually like owning it. That's something pretty cool. I love Taco Bell. I have no shame about that. I have no sponsorship with them, despite what people think, although I want one. Um, And now you know what? Here at the end of this Mail Day segment, I think I'm craving Taco Bell again. All right. Before I move into today's conversation with Dr. Beckett, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, joining me today is a guy whose reach extends to practically every nook and cranny of the hobby as we know it. You might know him from his podcast called Sports Card Insights. You might have heard him on a number of other shows, or you might be familiar with the little brand he started called Beckett. Obviously, I'm being facetious there. It's not a little brand at all. Dr. Beckett, if you can't tell, I'm really excited to have you on today. How are you doing? Doing great. I, I love the hobby. I love your show and uh, delighted to be on. Okay, so you have a background in education and really you're still an educator. Um, I learn every time I consume your content. I taught middle school for seven or eight years now. Um, I feel like there are some elements of that that carry over to my show and that's intentional. So I think it's safe to say that we both value education and the process behind it. So uh, when we first connected, my head was spinning with all of the things that we could talk about. I kept cycling back to education 
and distribution of information in a hobby. And I can't think of a better person to help spearhead this conversation than yourself. Before we get there, though, I'd like to give everyone a chance to learn a little bit about you. Um, I know we have a lot of newer people in the hobby right now. I, I hate to assume that they know everything about your career. I don't know everything about your career. And um, we don't have time for a last dance, dance length series, which we could do, but um, I want to give you the chance I give everybody. If you could give us an overview of your hobby history, um, what would that look like? Well, let me give it in a, this is, you're the basketball guy. So let me give it in a basketball context. I, my, my dad had been a collector when he was a kid. He had, actually he had Sport Kings. So okay. he had uh, Joe Lapchick, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but he had Babe Ruth Gowdies. He had uh, Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams play ball. So that was a real blessing. That, that made me aware that collecting was a thing, that there was more than just the cards at the grocery store, at the, at the, uh, the neighborhood store of the packs. So I got my first pack, penny pack in 56 with Spook Jacobs. I've talked about that. And then I didn't collect a whole lot in 56 or 57. I'm first or second grade. So, Kyle, I missed the Topps basketball. Mm -hmm. I don't remember seeing those. Okay. However, I'm still a collector in 61, 62. I did have Fleer. I did have Fleer. I bought packs of those. Uh, I wouldn't have, you know, but my family wasn't poor, but I don't ever remember buying more than a couple of packs. I don't ever remember buying, I never bought a box of cards. Uh, I'd, I'd buy a pack or two. And so, but it, but you know, the 61, 62 Fleers, you know, you didn't, you, if you bought a box, you'd have more than one set. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I did have a set of those and I since traded that off, which was a bad decision. Uh, but I thought, what do I need these basketball cards for? I, I love baseball. You know, baseball was the challenging set to complete with, you know, so many more cards uh, and probably more. I played more basketball growing up after a while than than baseball. So basketball was always a, a participant. It just keeps you in shape. It's hard to, you know, you, you, you sweat a lot more in basketball. So I had a lot of fun with basketball. Uh, you fast forward. Uh, I started the, I did the first annual price guide book was in 79. I'd done these price surveys, but then shortly after that, I started doing football and basketball cards too, on an annual basis. Then in 84 was the uh, baseball card magazine that was monthly. And it wasn't until 89 and 90 that, that um, 90, I think that the basketball magazine came out and that was a, a big success immediately. Michael Jordan on the cover, but you know, baseball had already taken off, football had taken off, basketball was taking off, nothing compared to it, what it is now, but, uh, and that was so much fun. It was so much fun for basketball to have its own magazine. Um, as some of your listeners know, I mean, I really had to put my collecting on the back seat when I started doing these monthly magazines. So we had a pretty big time conflict of interest stuff. And so I couldn't really collect for a few decades, but then after I sold the company and let the smoke clear, now I can, I can go to the national and pick up cards. So to answer your question, I started as a collector and then I was a dealer and then I was an author and a publisher. And like you say, probably an educator to some, some degree. And now I'm back to being more of a collector, not, not really much of a dealer. I sell a few things on Com C, but I'm a little bit on eBay, but I'm, I'm, 
I'm, I'm not trying to go big time. I'm trying to get back to enjoying my hobby roots and I'm really having a great time with them. The podcast has been part of that as well. So thanks for asking the question and thanks for having me on. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing, learning even more about you. And, and you mentioned your podcast. That's definitely one that listeners want to check out. And the thing I like about yours is it's a little daily blast too. So, you know, I don't have to wait for a certain day of the week. I know I always have access to that. Um, all right. So as I mentioned earlier, this conversation is going to focus in on information and education. So let's just jump in. Um, like I said, I know you have a little bit of background there. So I'm curious to know, um, what's your philosophy of education today? Uh, my, uh, I basically think that uh, the education system in America is messing up in two ways that I want to defeat, I think, and it affects the hobby as well. Is it One is that too, much, too many people are trying to tell people what to think instead of how to think. And then secondly, the long practice of debate uh, that used to be in high schools where you had to take a position in the debate and you didn't know whether you're going to be for or against until they told you. And so you had to be able to argue both sides of a of a of a of a of a proposition. People don't do that anymore. They have they're they're locked in on their way of thinking, and they don't they don't they think the other side are idiots or don't have uh, <laughs> or have no 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 morals or scruples. Mm-hmm. So I'm you know I want to I want to teach people how to think about things. And, uh, and then I want to help them realize that there are two sides to every issue, every social issue, probably every sports card issue. I could argue uh, whether or not it's uh, uh, prices are too high or prices are too low right mm-hmm. now. I think you could make arguments. So the, the ability to make arguments and not to be a robot or monolithic and to see the nuance, I think that's part of what education is missing. So I don't know if that is a middle school concept, but it, I don't know why it couldn't be. I think middle school kids are, they want to be able to think for themselves. They don't want to be told what to think. And so why in the hobby should it be like that? So I want to do provocative what if kind of stuff occasionally. I want to, re- I want to remember the past in a way that, that some things in the past are not repeated uh, mm-hmm. because they, they weren't good chapters. Um, so that's a long answer to your question, Kyle, but yeah. Okay. So, um, you offered up a a summary of your hobby history not long ago. And, you know, as we all know, a lot of your story revolves around the company you created, or even the, the price, the pricing information that came out before that. Um, and then you started the, like you said, you started the publication and you branched out to other sports from there. I know you had been releasing that pricing information, but what I want to know is this, how would you describe the purpose of your magazine? I know you said you did the yearlies too. How would you describe the purpose of your magazine when you first started? Was there one main task you wanted to accomplish or were there several things? Well, the main thing always was trying to bring some order out of the chaos that was out there and, uh, and to level the playing field. There was always this uh, negotiation between the, the buyer and the seller where the, the buyer was at a pretty big disadvantage. The seller, the, the dealer had all the knowledge, uh, the comps, so to speak, from back in the day. 
And so to kind of level that playing field was, was always the desire. And so the, mag the books were uh, the initial attempt. Well, for, before that, even there were these annual surveys I did and people, people use them, they use them, but then it, it, that, that wasn't enough. So then to do the annual price guides that came out, that was good, but then that wasn't enough. And so to, there were some, so many of these mainstream sets and certainly in season for players, there was movement such that again, play that that collectors could be taken advantage of, and so the magazines were an attempt to put everybody on the same basis. That when the that that's why the timeliness of the publications and our desire to not uh, allow people to jump the gun, we tried to let the subscribers and the dealers get the copies at about the same time, mm. so there there wouldn't be this edge. And and frankly, it helped grow the hobby because. You know, when people think it's a fair deal, they're not taken advantage of. They have more confidence in the in the overall market, right? And and I guess that was in a sense kind of um, grading did the same thing, right? It it removed some of the dialogue about condition, not everything, but between price guides and grading that leveled a lot of things out. Well, that and authentication. I mean, it it basically and even identification. You get it graded. You know what it, it you know what it says on the label. Uh, you you know that it ninety nine point nine 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 percent it's it's accurately uh, assessed in terms of the authenticity and all that. There's all kinds of quibbling about half point here and half point there on the grading, uh, but that's that's a dynamic element as well. It's a weak nine or it's a strong nine stuff like that. So, but yeah, I mean all those things that that put people on the same page allow the hobby to grow it allow, allows it to be talked about back in the day you, you couldn't trade when you were trading cards across the country it was by mail i don't think things were packed nearly as securely and you know something could have a little crease in it and that was never mentioned mm -hmm. um, you know so in fact in the back in the old days it wasn't it was considered not impolite but uh or unsporting but you know if you're too much of a condition freak People didn't want to trade with you because you were too yeah. picky. Okay. But if you, you wanted collectible cards in collectible condition, you respected the rarity of the cards and you knew that all cards were not mint. Um, and so you, you, but they, I don't remember very many one for one trades back in the seventies. In the seventies, early seventies, it was, there were group trades. You know, I'd send you a group of my cards and you'd send an equivalent value back. It was much simpler days. However, it could never grow beyond that with the lack of information. So did I get the best of some of the deals? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the price guides in the magazines and the books allowed people to say, you know what, at this point in time, if we use this source, we can, we can calculate it to where I know I'm not getting hugely taken advantage of. Right. Okay, so we talked then about, you know, one of the main components was pricing. And um, I've joked on this show before that I'm, I'm not a charts or an arrows guy, you know, because I, I go on Instagram and all I see is charts, charts, charts. Um, and it doesn't do anything for me um, because we all collect in different ways. But at the same time, similar to what you just talked about, I recognize the need for this stuff in the hobby ecosystem. And your publication filled this role for many years. Um, in fact, there are still dealers at shows that um, are, you know, ask if I have a Beckett value when I have something. And um, 
we'll probably touch more on that later. But I think people kind of falsely assumed that Beckett was just a price guide when um, there was a lot of really important non-pricing information in the front portion of the magazine. And, uh, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar, that, that could be articles, um, hot lists, player interviews, letters to the editor. And I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out there. Um, and even some of the advertisements to me were incredibly informative. Um, so you didn't necessarily mention that as one of the, the purposes earlier. Um, what role did the other information come in, in addition to the pricing? Well, I mean, you've talked about education, but there's also entertaining. I mean, it needed to be enjoyable and be understood, but it could be that, you know, data or just numbers can be pretty antiseptic. I mean, you really want to have a situation where, where it's appealing. I, I felt like our magazine wasn't going to grow if it was a, if it was just a pure catalog. I mean, that, that's not very much fun. Uh, we wanted to have a left brain appeal and a right brain appeal. And so we, we, had an, we had some pretty strong art directors over the years and some excellent writers who've gone on to, to, uh, to uh, notable success in other fields. And so but I just really thought we, we want to make this something that people will be proud of. And that it'd be a read. It wouldn't be, I'm going to look up this card and then put the magazine on the shelf, or I'm just going to bring it and roll it up. I'm going to, I can leave it on my, uh, on, on the counter. I can leave it in the living room. I could show it to somebody and it wouldn't, it, it, and, and I could show them some of the articles and some of the articles were die hard for collectors, but many of them were somebody that if they really enjoyed the sport, they could be drawn into it. And there'd be a sports card tie-in, you know, basketball, there'd be something that, that would mention the memorabilia and, and illustrate via the, the, the memorabilia and the cards. But it, it was to broaden the appeal, Kyle, to grow the, you know, one of my stated things I'm remembering now early on was to, was to grow the hobby. Mm -hmm. and, and no one person can do that, but, you know, we were trying to do our part in that. So, um, I know you mentioned that you since retired and kind of come back to the collecting side more so. Um, so, you know, obviously you're not as hands-on in the pricing as you used to be, but um, you have jumped into the podcasting arena and, uh, and I'm very thankful that you have, by the way, um, you're educating through that means. Um, wouldn't you have loved to have that when you started? I didn't have time, Kyle. I mean, I just, <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I had no time. And in fact, Rich and I just did an episode about that. I don't know if it's released yet, but Rich Klein, we're talking back in the day about how all the PR and all the, these kinds of things, I delegated that. I had some great members of my team, including Rich, who loved doing that stuff. And I had, I had the equivalent of at least two full-time jobs, you know, back in the day when I was doing a heavy duty work on the pricing with the magazine and the books and running the company and being a, husband and father, that's, that's probably four full-time jobs. And I had a heart attack. So, uh, but I'm, I'm okay now, but you know, that's a wake up call that uh, I, I shouldn't be doing that much. And so the PR and some of the podcasting thing, we had a podcast 25 years ago, 20 in the nineties, we had a podcast mm -hmm. and it was, it was on, it was like an internet radio show is what it was. They didn't call okay. it podcast in those days. Okay, we had a guy that came in. I was maybe on the first one as a guest, 
and Rich did it. Rich came in and did a trivia thing. And we had a, a, a buddy of mine that had a radio background that, that uh, did interviews and did that, but it never really took off. We had some sponsors, but it, it just was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't have time for that stuff. So the, to delegate that stuff to somebody that, number one, does it better, and number two, enjoys it more, that was easy for me. But now I'm at the point where I'm realizing when you're delegating, I don't know if you're married and have kids, but you can't delegate being a dad. You can't delegate being a husband. You can't say, you know, honey, I won't be home for dinner, but I'm sending my assistant to have dinner with you, you know, or, or you know, here's somebody's going to take my kids to the zoo. I mean, you get away with that once or twice. But, you know, if you're the dad, if you're the husband, that's that's you can't assign that to somebody else and not think that you're 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 shirking. So so I didn't want to I couldn't delegate that, but I could delegate this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so. But the podcast, I can't delegate telling a story that only I know. I can't delegate doing a tribute to somebody when I'm reading the obituary written by somebody that never met the guy and I knew him and he was a pillar of the industry. And I, you know, I, I set up next to him at shows in the 70s. And I can, I can tell uh, stories that are, that are more personal. So that's the stuff that only I can do. And if only I can do it, I need to do it. I'm sitting, I looked at the clock or I looked at the calendar and thought, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> what right. am I going to do? Carry, you know, I, I need to be, uh, ex, you know, sharing these stories or otherwise. And then what I realized, I'm co- kind of going on here, but I realized that it isn't just me sharing the stories because otherwise I just write a book. I just write a book, put the stories in there. The problem is I can't, I can't write a linear book because I can't think of all the stories. But if I'm interviewing you and you're interviewing me and I'm discussing things with Rich and, and other guys that, that worked with me over the years, I'm thinking, yeah, I remember that story. And then I can unpack it further. And so the interview things have been wonderful because I, you just can't say, well, what, what, uh, tell me what happened in 1994. Well, I, you know, I could go back and look at all the magazines and oh, how, what was I thinking then? But if I talked to somebody I was working with in 94, that was the, the editor of our hockey magazine, he and I are going to bat things around. Things are going to come up that I haven't thought about in a long time. And I wouldn't think about him other than him bringing it up. He's going to jog my memory. I'm going to jog his. And it's all recorded for people to listen to. And by doing it every day, I don't expect everybody to listen to everyone, but they can listen to anyone they want to. And I'm trying to make them timeless and evergreen that if they're more interested in basketball or football or hockey or baseball or the old days, vintage or modern, you know, most of these episodes are short enough that they're, they're as described. Mm -hmm. So um, it seems like, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to create something and, and educate at that time you know, you have the podcast now, but at that time you wanted to educate something that um, you said, you know, you could show to people and that people could look through. And I think at that time, attention spans were a lot longer um, and and people didn't mind consuming something of that length. You know, we didn't have smartphones um, even in the nineties, you know, I know you started earlier than that, but the nineties, the internet was even in its infancy. And um, you talked about wanting to create something to help equalize the field. Well, if you were to set out with the same purpose today, um, what approach would you take and, and what mediums would you home in on, do you think? 
Well, I mean, it, it's it, it, in the digital world, it's how do you, how do you charge for some of these things? Is it subscription? Is it, uh, are there micro charges? I mean, those are the things we better. And we, we had the idea for ComC way before ComC did it. It's just that there, it, 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 that idea wasn't quite ripe. And then by, and by the time Tim started, I'd already sold the company, but, but, uh, but I thought that was a cool idea. We, we'd had that, but it's, logistically difficult it's uh, uh programming difficult it's uh honesty and security uh, difficult so there were a lot of hurdles but we batted those around and it's just you know so somebody be doing that so there's there's two kinds of ideas in the hobby one is there these infrastructure plays uh, you know the you know data analytic kinds of things like the card ladder guys are doing that don't require any any um physicality you know, they're programming deals. They're helpful to somebody, the, 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 the digital play. And then there's infrastructure in the other sense of handling the cards, grading the cards, shipping the cards, uh, vaulting the cards, all that kind of stuff. If I were to get involved now, um, it'd probably be on the digital side. I, I'm more analytical. Okay. And so I, when I throw out ideas to my old Beckett media teammates and the leadership there, they're generally on ideas that are not capital intensive. They're, 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 they're human capital, intellectual expert capital intensive. That we have this expertise, here's how we could parlay it. And they like some ideas and they think some ideas are futuristic. <laughs> and I'm not the boss anymore. So I just smile and say, well, that's just an idea I had. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit then about how, you know, in, instead of having to project how we would do it, let's talk about how information is shared today. And we have podcasts, we have YouTube, social media is huge. Um, there are all sorts of apps. You, you talked about Card Ladder that will help us with our, our purchasing, our portfolios and our collections. Um, as an educator, I guess one thing that's a little overwhelming to me is the speed at which all of this information is shared what do you think are some of the benefits and challenges of so much stuff being shared so fast? Well, it's uh, like the book Paradox of Choice. I mean, you have so many choices and, and, and there's so much out there and it happens so quickly that uh, uh, what, what I sense, what I'm trying, well, just to take it back to your podcast and my podcast is that you're not, you, you know, some of, the, some of these things that these apps are doing is that if you do it today or do it tomorrow, you're going to get a different answer. But a lot of the issues you're dealing with in your podcast and I'm dealing with, the answer is the same today as it is tomorrow. So there are principles. And so, because I just think it becomes kind of a chore if in order to buy a single car to the show, you have to research on the spot instantly to make sure you're having a good deal, that you don't have some sense of whether it's a good deal based on priced is marked or 20% off or whatever it is that you have to verify through one of the apps or checking the eBay comps, something like that. And that, that's a lot of friction there. They've reduced the friction. Okay. So as an educator, we're teaching kids how to look things up. Uh, and even when the, when the lookup is, is very fast, it's very fast now compared to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's still looking something up that you don't know. It's like, if you went to Spain uh, or Portugal, you know, for Spanish or Portuguese, 
and you didn't, all you had was a dictionary and it was a, it was an online dictionary. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a, a digital dictionary so that your words, you could translate the words of the sentences one, it'd be a chore. At some point, if you really love going to Spain, you ought to learn the language hmm. so that you're not having to do a, a translating app to look up every, every, every third word. So I believe knowledge is, uh, is more than information and data. You know, you got data, you organize it into some useful information, but the knowledge is, is uh, kind of making it uh, really applicable. And then the wisdom comes from being able to apply it. And I, I think it, it, they're still stuck in the data phase or the information phase. Let, let me gather the information. That's why the card ladder guys are noteworthy. They're trying to make it more knowledge-based that they're using uh, transparent formulas, which I, I didn't do that. We, we weren't gonna open up and say, hey, here's how we're getting the prices. But again, they can do that because their secret sauce is in their sanit sanitizing of the data. Mm -hmm. Okay, we, we had to do that stuff on the fly. And so we, we, there's no way we could have done, and they're only doing a thousand cards or 10,000 cards or something. We were doing a million cards. So it's just, it's just more challenging. So, so I, I would say too, um, you know, talk about information moving so quickly. And, and I, I guess I was thinking, you know, if, if the, the data being there quick is a good thing, but that kind of goes against your philosophy of education where you said, well, we need to teach the how, um, which, you know, which will show us how to get to that, which kind of went with your answer there. So I, I appreciate that take on it. Um, one of the things that's concerned me a lot lately is the spread of misinformation. Um, and, you know, the main thing that's killing me right now as a patch guy is the classification of all the relics and when they were worn. And I've been beating that drum for years and it's like, people are just now discussing it. It's like, no, this discussion has been going for a while, but um, for whatever reason, it seems like misinformation spreads a lot quicker than the good stuff. And uh, I know that's not anything new, um, but like I said, it seems like it's spreading quicker. Um, there's not a lot of independent analysis right now either. Information seems to be taken at face value, which goes back to what you said, where you said, you know, we need to learn how to think and not necessarily what to think. Um, how did you fight misinformation in the days of your publication? And then uh, what do you think we can learn from those days that will help us to do the same now? Statistics is the science of decision-making in the face of uncertainty. There's, there's, you've got to make a decision, even not making a decision is a decision. Uh, uncertainty you'll always have there. Even if you had all the data, you really don't have all the data. And so you have to know how to make a decision based on the data that you have. It's the misinformation. There's people say that misinformation is a lie. It doesn't have to be a lie because that implies intent. Uh, it can just be partial information or mm -hmm. selectively organized information, putting your best foot forward. Some people call that salesmanship. Uh, if, it's, if it's intent to deceive, then it may still be salesmanship, but it's not the kind of salesman I, uh, ship that I want to get uh, participate in. So, so I think it's partial information. It's uh, uh, you know, 
the circumstantial information, you know, basically now it's not enough, Kyle, to say that a, a, a grade of eight uh, sold for X because you have to say, well, wait, what company got the eight? Okay, but then even then, is it a strong eight or a weak eight? Did somebody say that it's one of the best eights? Uh, and so it, it was, is it an off-centered eight? Or is it, uh, so, so it's, so that's partial information. So to look at a selective comp for a weak eight to point out that that's why you should get a better deal on this eight that you want, that's a, that's a good looking eight, uh, better eye appeal. I mean, so it's, it's, uh, again, you can't, the policing of it is, it's not about, it's policing it if it's egregious and it's equipping, equipping the, the collectors and, and the buyers to, to know what questions to ask and to realize all eights are not created equal. And last month's price is, it didn't necessarily go up 1% a month. You know, some things go up, some things go down. If the comp is six months old or six years old, I think card letters trying to deal with some of those things, but it's, it's hard. And, it, yeah. and, and, and they're trying to re they're, they're real, they're behind the scenes stuff is what Chris and Christina do of sanitizing the data. Cause we scraped eBay. We had a license from eBay to get their data over the years back in the day. And that was a lot of work because everything is listed wherever it's listed. And so you'd have to weed out the ones that were incorrectly listed, misleadingly listed. Uh, it's just there. But eBay, it was, we said, well, eBay, why don't you make standardized list listings, standardized listings that go by uh, Beckett nomenclature? They said, why don't you mind your own business? <laughs> we have a huge <laughs> business and uh, you are one of the categories and uh that would be imposing a straitjacket on the freeform listing that uh, has allowed us to grow so much. So I, I didn't, didn't, didn't uh, push back on that. That's certainly their right. But if everything was really clear, but you know, they'll put PSA 10 question mark or something, oh, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So that is misleading. And um, I don't think it's innocent. But if people were to say, hey, you know what, I, I think that's not, I don't want to buy from that person. I've realized now from these various nationals I've been to, all of them, I only like to buy from people that I like, that I think are, that are decent, that are good, that are straight shooters. If they're not, um, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of places to shop. So if people say, I'm not going to shop with people that are using deceptive trade practices, then they either get squeezed out, they, they get the message, I need, to, I need to clean up my act. There's so many ways to make money, you know, of, of being a, playing it straight. Yeah, you talked about learning how to think earlier and, and um, you know, having to price every card and comp every card is, is just not ideal. Um, I heard someone on another show talk about how he, he looks for liquid cards at every table and if they're priced competitively, then he, he thinks he can trust the other cards that are there. And, and that's kind of how, you know, he, he delves into the how to think there. And I, I thought that was a, a pretty good approach that I had never heard before. Um, so well, in the, you mean, you mean he's, he's determining their, their, their kind of macro pricing concept, right? You know, that maybe they price things a year ago and didn't change the prices. And if you've seen enough of that, then he said, okay, well, then I can see that anybody that's gone up in the last year would probably be a bargain. Right. Because this guy hadn't remarked his prices. 
Well, you, you know, that's, well, that shows insight. That's somebody that's, that's thinking. Right. So um, when we do have those differences that we do have to discuss, we really, we need a platform to do that. And um, I've talked on here about message board history before, and I, I more or less kind of bemoan the fact that that medium is slowly fading away, or at least I, I feel like it is what it used to be. Um, it was nice in the sense of if someone posted a piece of information, you could see it in a linear fashion and, and people could talk it through together. And you didn't have to always figure out who was replying to who, um, yeah. kind of like social media today. Um, I know a lot of this discussion sounds like it's, it's more for content creators, but I think in today's age, everyone that has a social media account is an influencer to some extent. Everyone has a voice or some experience that they can contribute to the hobby at large. Um, so seeing that that is our current, you know, popular medium, social media, do you think there's a chance that the current mediums are failing us in the long run? Uh, the first failure that I, I guess I could say this publicly, uh, very disappointed. I, I was gone by then, but uh, I think my old company abdicated its uh, potential market leadership position in the, in the, you know, was their bulletin boards or, you know, chat mm -hmm. kind of things back in the day. They kind of walked away, changed the rules and lost their market dominance in having a place. Cause that's something, if I would have been in charge, I would have, even if that would have been a lost leader. And now we see that it wouldn't have to be a lost leader because when you get that many eyeballs, but the Beckett.com uh, should have been the place for people to come uh, to be a central repository for all things about sports cards. And when that was law, you know, the blowout forums, you know, blowout sells cases. Okay. Mm -hmm. But they've got a place they've created, they've improved their brand by that. And, and, you know, they, I, I don't know that that's a lost leader for them, but it's, they're allowing the giving people a place to, to come together, but a, a place where that would be monitored vetted, you know, reasonably clean, that'd be helpful information, like, like you're saying, I think you're a man after my own heart on the education, but it'd be fun. And, but also uh, educational. Uh, that's, that, that should have been my old company. And I think mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't an obvious profit center at that time. So that's, shouldn't throw anybody under the bus. I mean, I can understand right. the decision was made, but I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I think that our market leadership when I was in charge would have dictated that that needs to happen and we need to gradually find a way to make that a, a positive aspect of our business. Because if you're the hub of the industry, that's, that's a good place to be. And, and, and Beckett still is to some degree, but not as much as it could have been. So we've seen some of those types of places go away, Beckett, Hobby Kings, um, even non-message boards. We had Worth Point, you had Photo Bucket. I, I suppose some of that stuff's still out there, but it's not really accessible. So it's not really out there. Um, you know, let's say yeah, a lot of stuff's getting posted to Instagram. Let's say Instagram all of a sudden goes under someday. Um, how do we preserve our hobby information if, it, if that's the way it's being distributed right now? Well, that's a that's a pretty apocalyptic uh, possibility that Instagram goes poof. Uh, the uh, 
Well, you know, when, when something's digital, I mean, and photo bucket, I don't know uh, that much about that. Other than there's other photo services. I, I'm presuming that you had some warning that you could pull back and archive your own photos. Um, but maybe stuff was lost. Worth point. I, I, I guess stuff was lost. But, you know, with podcasts and, uh, you know, all my podcasts are digitally saved. I mean, there's always going to be podcasts. There's always going to be wax museum, you know, even if you quit, there's still going to be people that can, uh, that can access that. So, so the digital world, it's, 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 you know, and in the print world, you've got to store the, the magazines or the books in the digital world. It's, it's just, it's just on a, on a hard drive or something. So I'll close with this question then. And I think you, you laid out a good example of it earlier when you said, I have to do my podcast because I'm the only one that has these stories, um, you know, every, your stories that are unique to you. Um, how do you think that the people listening to this show can be good, responsible stewards of hobby information? Well, I mean, if, if, if you're uh, in your consumption then hopefully you're consuming uh, content that is helpful and positive and good and useful. Okay. So they're, in a, they're listening to your show. They're listening to other shows that are, that are, that are good, that are, that are, that are helpful. Okay. Uh, and on their own, so that that's what, that's the not garbage in, but that's the good stuff in. And then the not garbage out, but the good stuff out, they're able to then repeat some of that stuff and tell their friends um, you know, the national sprouted up and grew because people were sharing with their friends that this is a really dynamic, amazing hobby that's really hitting its stride. And so we had half the people of the national were brand new. Okay. That was because there was a positive mes messaging that was passed on. And they weren't all listening to your podcast or my podcast, but there were a number of voices that were saying, this is, this is the greatest hobby of all time. And not just basketball, all the sports, and maybe not even just sports, just cars, and maybe not even just cards. Just you know, the NFTs, the memorabilia, all that stuff. So, so yeah, I, I think if we're paying it forward with a positive tone, uh, you know, the informational aspect, but also you know, the education, but also the 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 entertainment. This is fun. It's fun. It's and it's profitable. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, you're learning. You're you're able to track with a sport. You're enjoying. You're doing it with people you like hanging out with, and you're making money. So you know. So if that message gets 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 uh, put forth, then and it, it continues to grow, then this next national will be even bigger than in in the Atlantic City will be even bigger than the Chicago one. Well, I hope so. And I'm still. I feel like I'm still recovering from Chicago, but I think that means I had a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Beckett, I appreciate the fact that you, you know, you helped lay the foundation for a lot of the things we have today in the hobby that we enjoy. And um, you've been an awesome steward of information. You've, you've spread a positive message over the years. I appreciate that. I'm glad you were able to come on and uh, chat today. I hope that we can do this again sometime. Before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity that I give everybody. Feel free to promote anything or let us know about something you're working on. The next few moments here are yours. Well, I'm not a big social media guy. You know, basically, I want to I want to not engage one on one. I want to engage one to many. I mean, I, I enjoy connecting with people at the shows and there's a show coming up and I'll 
have another hobby content creator dinner that I invited you to, but you must be present to win. You got to be out. That'll be uh, shortly. And so I'm doing that. I'm really trying to be low key, Kyle. I mean, if I, if I really let her rip, I'd I'd probably have a lot more uh, listeners, which, which would be fine, except that I need to hire some people. And my goal really is to influence the influencers. And so I, I, people that are interested in uh, going deeper in the, in, in the hobby, because I think at heart, it's a hobby are going to uh, listen to podcast and, and, you know, I make it available for people to correspond with me. I get a lot of great questions through email. It's Dr. James Beckett at gmail.com. So it's pretty simple. Um, and I, I love having friends and strangers on the podcast. I, I get great questions from people. I know, I don't know. I get completely different questions from people I don't know than from people I do know. And so, and I'm, I'm on my way to, I'm already up to 700 and something episodes if you count the short weekend ones. So, so I'm off to the races and I, Diane, my awesome wife says, are you ever going to run out of topics? I said, I don't think so because I mean, I could do every day, just basketball. I love basketball, but baseball is even bigger, you know, and, and I love, you know, Brett McGrath. I love wrestling too. And my brother and I, we had a lot of fun with wrestling over the years, not each other, but watching, <laughs> watching on TV. Uh, so and it's a great hobby and it's unlimited almost in terms of the enjoyment. And so I, I'm looking forward to that. All right. So be on the watch for Dr. Beckett's show, Sports Card Insights. Uh, thank you for coming on and we'll be chatting soon. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. All right. Well, there you have it. I want to thank Dr. Beckett again for coming on the show. And toward the end of our conversation, we talked a little bit about preserving data. Well, since that conversation, PWCC removed all of their eBay data from the price research tool. And I know this was a byproduct of their little dispute. Um, but more importantly, it was a huge blow to the hobby. Another one, um, another blow to the hobby that's already lost a lot of great resources. First, there was Photo Bucket, then Hobby Kings, then Worth Point, and now this. And I think we need to be having more conversations about our hobby data and what's going to become of it in the future. And I'm not just talking about pricing. Every time I bring up Worth Point, people will say, you know, well, I never did have a subscription. You never needed one. It wasn't about the pricing. It was about the auction, descriptions, and the pictures. There was so much research that you could do just based off of that without even having a paid subscription for the pricing. Um, you know, I don't know, um, I don't know what we can do about it. I don't have a great solution, but maybe there's someone out there that have some ideas. Maybe that someone could be you or some of your friends. Maybe you and your friends, just something to think about. Either way, thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Beckett. Maybe there was something we talked about today that resonated with you. If so, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. You can find me on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. 
hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.